The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasser Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. Nathan Sim of the Section of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine at the Veterans Affairs Hospital in Washington, D.C. He is an assistant professor of medicine at George Washington University and conducts translational research on biomarkers of inflammation and coagulation in ARDS and sepsis. Welcome, Dr. Sim. Thank you, Yasha. In today's podcast, we will discuss the findings of an important critical care trial, Albuterol for the Treatment of Acute Lung Injury, or ALTA, a multicenter trial conducted by the ARDS network. The article describing the findings is entitled Randomized Placebo-Controlled Clinical Trial of an Aerosolized Beta-2 Agonist for the Treatment of Acute Lung Injury, and is published in the September 1, 2011 American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Joining me today to discuss the article are Dr. Michael Maffei, Dr. Gavin Perkins, and Dr. Jacob Yasha Snyder. Dr. Maffei, the lead author of the article, is Professor of Medicine and Anesthesia, as well as Senior Associate at the Cardiovascular Research Institute and Associate Director of the Intensive Care Unit at the University of California at San Francisco. Dr. Perkins is the first author of one of the editorials regarding the ALTA study in the September 1st Blue Journal. He is Professor of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Warwick and Heart of England NHS Foundation Trust. We are also delighted to have Dr. Snyder, editor of the Blue Journal, join us for this podcast. He is Ernest S. Baisley, Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern. Let's start with a question for Dr. Snyder. Please describe the rationale for the use of aerosolized beta agonists in acute lung injury. So beta-adrenergic agonists have been shown by several groups, initially by Dr. Matei and others, that they induce the activation of the pathway for edema fluid reabsorption by recruiting sodium-potassium ATPase and modulating the entry of sodium and therefore accelerating edema clearance. And if you think that uh, the alveolar epithelium is full of edema during lung injury, any way uh, to accelerate and to free the alveoli from the fluid by beta-adrenergic, which has been shown mechanistically to work in animal models of lung injury in alveolar epithelial cells, then that is a good rationale for the use in patients. Dr. Maffei, do you have anything to add in terms of the rationale for the use of aerosolized beta agonists in acute lung injury? Dr. Snyder summarized the main mechanism that would account for the more rapid reabsorption of alveolar edema fluid. The uh, additional potential mechanisms are that beta agonists can increase surfactant release, and secondly, they can also have some anti-inflammatory properties and very mild, potentially bronchodilating properties in lung injuries. So there were two or three other mechanisms by which a beta agonist might be beneficial in the patient with acute lung injury. In the BALTI-1 trial done in the UK uh, showed a reduced quantity of extravascular lung water as measured by a thermal method and also reduced 
plateau airway pressures in a small randomized trial, a kind of small phase two trial, although that was done with intravenous albuterol or salbutamol. Dr. Matthew, I would ask you to describe the design of the current study. Well, the design of this was worked on for several months by the uh, NHLBI Arts Network investigators. The decision was made to use an aerosolized form of the beta-2 agonist albuterol for two reasons. One, we thought it would be safe and had a high likelihood of being reasonably well delivered to the injured alveoli. And this was based on some prior work where we'd measured the concentration of albuterol in pulmonary edema fluid. And we also knew that the UK investigators might be doing a larger phase three trial with intravenous albuterol. So we simply designed it as a a randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled trial of giving albuterol five milligrams aerosolized every four hours, either the drug or placebo, to patients with acute lung injury over a 10-day period with the um, primary endpoint being ventilator-free days or the number of days the patient would be free of the ventilator and alive over a 28-day period and with the usual secondary outcomes as mortality and ICU days and so on. Over the uh, the last 10 years, several uh, of the ArtsNet publications have, have changed the standard supportive care of acute lung injury. I think talking about how the supportive care was managed in this trial is important. Could you uh, uh, talk about that? Yes, I think that's very important because the one established major breakthrough in treating successfully acute lung injury in patients has been the use of a lung protective ventilation strategy, which I think is widely accepted uh, internationally now. There are variations on how lung protective ventilation is implemented, but by and large, it involves a lower tidal volume and lower airway pressure. So that was part of the requirement for all patients. And secondly, patients were supposed to receive a fluid conservative strategy, which means that after they have been out of shock, 12 hours off of vasopressors, they would have their intravenous fluids limited strictly and would be only given fluids needed for antibiotics, sedatives, and nutrition and furthermore, that they would then receive diuretics to actively um, put them in negative fluid balance. This was supposed to be guided by the central venous pressure to try and reduce the pressure to below four millimeters of mercury, though it wasn't done quite as strictly as in our former uh, fluid conservative trial. Thank you for clarifying that. I would ask you now to discuss findings of the study in comparing aerosolized beta agonist to placebo for the treatment of acute lung injury? Yes, so the trial was designed originally to be a 1,000 patient phase three trial, but like in most of these trials, we set up futility boundaries so that if if the treatment were not showing promise by statistical standards, then the trial could be stopped by the data safety monitoring board, and that's what happened in this trial after 250 patients the first efficacy and futility checked by the DSMB, the albuterol-treated group were not showing benefit. If anything, they were showing a trend for a negative effect, and the DSMB made the decision the trial should stop because it was very unlikely statistically to end up after a 1,000 patients showing benefit. So it was stopped, and primary endpoint ventilator-free days was not different between the two groups. Mortality was not different. And in fact, as we can discuss more perhaps in a little bit, there was even a trend for 
some of these endpoints to be worse in the albuterol-treated group. So it was quite disappointing that it did not appear to have the hoped-for benefit. Dr. Perkins, why do you think aerosolized albuterol was not beneficial in this trial? I think there are a number of possibilities, some of which have have already been alluded to. I think one, one of the earliest on the list has to be the question of the route of drug delivery. Dr. Matte and I have spent time over the years discussing the, the optimal route for drug delivery, and despite there being early and encouraging work from his group demonstrating that it's possible to obtain therapeutic levels in pulmonary edema fluid, there remains uncertainty in the damaged flooded alveoli whether you can actually achieve adequate drug delivery. I think in order for the lung to be able to respond to the topical administration of albuterol, then the alveolar capillary barrier needs to be sufficiently intact and there needs to be sufficient functioning epithelia there to be able to upregulate alveolar fluid clearance. I think combined with that, the fact that we've seen improvements in supportive care over the, the last decade, informed by the work of the RDS network, that we may be in the position where the alveoli were already in an optimal position Dr. Snyder, why do you think there was a lack of efficacy in this trial? So uh, this is part of what Dr. Perkins was saying also. I I think it's multifactorial. One is like that maybe the drug was not delivered appropriately to the cells uh, that were still available to clear them. But I think that it opens a larger question of are those trials have the possibility to distinguish among the myriad of treatments that the patient is undergoing to explore this single intervention. So, for example, as we discussed previously mechanistically, fluid clearance in animal models and cells is improved by beta-adrenergic agonists. We all know that uh, there is more bronchodilatation. Dr. Matei mentioned that there is some anti-inflammatory effects, although there is some studies also that show that there is some opposite effects, also depending which beta-adrenergic But what are we learning from that? So should we conclude that the study shows that beta-adrenergic should not be used in this population, or is that a failure of drug delivery to the alveoli, or because the alveoli were too damaged and therefore the cells couldn't respond, or that there are so many other confounding factors that we cannot isolate this issue, or that a surfactant couldn't repopulate because beta-adrenergic, as Dr. Matei said, also uh, improved the secretion of surfactant. So there's a myriad of questions that the study and many negative studies raise. So I don't know that we will be able to, to pinpoint to a specific problem of what did happen, but the question is, should we as clinicians not consider beta-adrenergic in patients with lung injury Has this study resolved this issue? And I don't think so. I'd ask Dr. Maffei, then, in this study, the aerosolized albuterol dose was 5 milligrams. How was this dose determined? Right. That's a really good question. The um, challenge with all aerosolized drugs that are trying to be delivered beyond the airways is how much penetration will there be in the alveoli, how much distribution and this applies or whether you're trying to deliver a small or a larger molecule. So we chose five milligrams, which actually is higher than the dose most physicians use. Most 
physicians start with approximately 2.5 milligrams of aerosolized albuterol, although they're metered-dosed inhaler forms that have a little different concentration. But we did have two or three centers, such as Duke, that routinely use 5 milligrams, and it did not seem to be a problem in terms of safety, cardiac effects, tachyarrhythmias. And so we decided to go with a higher dose, deliberately trying to maximize delivery to the airspaces. And in the detailed methods of the paper, including the supplement in the Blue Journal, uh, we explain in some detail how we uh, adjusted the ventilator circuit and all kinds of details to try to maximize delivery of the aerosolized agonist. But at the end of the day, you never know how much of the albuterol for example, distributed to alveoli that were not injured versus alveoli that were injured. So there's always the possibility that an aerosolized approach did not deliver the drug sufficiently to the areas of injury. Now, we did have, as I mentioned briefly before, preclinical data that we knew what concentration would work to upregulate, increase the resolution of alveolar edema, and that was at the range of 10 to the minus 6 molar, and we did measure in this study a concentration in the blood, the plasma, 10 to the minus 8 molar, which is more likely than not to reflect that the concentration in the lung was, in some parts of the lung, 10 to the minus 6 molar. But we'll never know, just like in aerosolized surfactant trials, how much of the um, material really got to the injured alveoli. As a follow-up, Dr. Maffe, you previously mentioned concerns about harm with the albuterol. Uh, I'd ask you how you were able to assess for toxicity related to albuterol and if you could expand on uh, what you said earlier about possibility of harm related to the aerosolized uh, albuterol. Right. Well, you know, it's an interesting question. Even though the drug is used frequently in the ICU when you test it, with a new indication, you have to be sure you monitor for safety issues. Uh, almost as if it were a new drug. So we went to a lot of trouble with this in terms of monitoring for tachycardia, arrhythmias, and so on. At the end of the day, the data in the manuscript shows that we did not find an increased incidence of atrial fibrillation or tachyarrhythmias. There was a small increase in heart rate in the patients who received albuterol, which was not of any apparent clinical consequence and sort of confirmed that the patients received bioactive drug, but we really didn't find uh, any uh, significant complications. We looked for changes in blood potassium, glucose, and as well as uh, cardiovascular effects. So it seemed to be safe in the way we gave the drug to these critically ill patients. Dr. Perkins, again talking about drug delivery, Dr. Massey and his co-authors postulated that a, that a possible reason for the lack of benefit of the aerosolized beta agonist may be related to preferential delivery to relatively normal alveoli rather than injured edematous ones. You were an uh, investigator in BALTI-1, the single center trial showing IV albuterol reduced lung water and acute lung injury, as well as the multicenter follow-up study BALTI-2. Do you think intravenous beta agonists confer an advantage in alveolar fluid clearance compared to aerosolized beta agonists, possibly by delivering drug to, uh, to injured alveoli? This was one of the, um, the key questions that we grappled with in the planning phases of the Balti-1 trial was the question as to the mode of um, delivery. 
hypothetically there is good evidence for the nebulized route it was attractive the side effect profile in terms of tachyarrhythmias and and other side effects are less with nebulized therapy attractive because it potentially delivers directly to the damaged alveoli and there was proof of concept data as Dr. Mate has already referred to that concentration of 10 to the minus 6 molar had been measured in pulmonary edema fluid. Our concern and, and decision to adopt an intravenous route was partly knowledge of planned trial of the nebulized route by the, the US network but also really concerns over whether truly we could absolutely guarantee drug delivery to fluid-filled, damaged alveo, poorly aerated alveoli. And it was this uncertainty of drug delivery and evidence from the nebulized surfactant trials where there'd been a failure to demonstrate benefit that really led us to go down the route of investigating intravenous drug delivery. Within the Bolte-1 study, which used 15 micrograms per kilogram per hour, a small phase two study that enrolled 40 patients at a single site, we were able to demonstrate proof of concept that intravenous beta agonists were able to reduce extravascular lung water and show some improvement in pulmonary mechanics. When we measured circulating levels of albuterol, this was at 10 to the minus 6 molar, similar to the nebulized route from Dr. Mate's group, but two log greater in the circulation. Dr. Maffe, it appears that the current trial did not measure extravascular lung water, which I know is uh, challenging to measure that, as was measured in Balti 1. Were you able to assess if aerosolized albuterol did reduce pulmonary edema? Well, that's a really good question. In fact, we applied to the National Institute of Health for an ancillary grant in which we proposed to measure extravascular lung water with the thermal method. Greg Martin and I submitted that, and after one revision, it was approved. Uh, it was got a good score and was um, ready for funding, and we had six of our 12 university centers ready to measure lung water in some of the patients, so we'd have data like they did in the Balti-1 trial on extravascular lung water in the placebo versus aerosolized beta agonist treated patients, but the trial was stopped for futility just at the point where we would have been able to uh, start to make those measurements. So therefore, the data we have is all indirect, meaning that we can only make educated guesses. There is no difference in oxygenation in the two groups and no difference in plateau airway pressure. So that would suggest there was no major difference in the quantity of pulmonary edema in the treated versus untreated patients, but the data is only um, indirect. I was pleasantly surprised to see that the 60- and 90-day placebo group mortality was less than 20% in this trial, which was significantly lower than prior ARDS network trials. Do you think this was due to enrollment of less sick patients in this trial or improvement in supportive care compared to prior trials? Right. So that's a really good question and terrific observation. This could be the most important result from this trial. In fact, the patients enrolled in this trial were sicker than in patients we've enrolled in prior ARDSNET trials. There were more patients in shock, um, something like 47% versus in the fluid conservative trial we published in 2006, where it was about one-third in shock, plus the Apache 3 score was a little bit higher in this trial. 
So I think the patients were, if anything, sicker. So what I think it shows is that we've had an amazingly um, gratifying progress in treating and saving lives in acute lung injury. It's very hard to achieve these in any medical arena with any clinical diseases. And we've gone from a mortality of 40% in 2000 to a mortality of nearly 20%. And there's no other example of this in acute or chronic lung disease with a single exception of uh, using surfactant therapy to rescue um, infants with preterm lung disease. So I think there's a very gratifying part of this story, and it must reflect the improved supportive care with lung protective ventilation and perhaps fluid conservative therapy. Dr. Perkins, I would ask you, do you think the low mortality in the placebo group in this study affects the interpretation of the study results? I mean, I think I'd like to start off by really echoing the comments from Dr. Mate there that a, a mortality of 20% in this sick group of patients is an impressive advance of where we were 10 years ago. I mean, I think uh, alongside that, it also presents us with challenges now for interventions looking to improve outcomes in acute lung injury where treatments have been optimized over the last decade. Now, in this specific study, the primary outcome was ventilator-free days, which is a composite um, outcome of the duration of ventilation and mortality. I think it's noteworthy that there was no difference in ventilator-free days and no difference in pulmonary mechanics. And I think this potentially suggests that in the absence of demonstrating evidence of efficacy at reducing the duration of, of ventilation, that there is potentially a lack of biological plausibility that if it has failed to improve the duration of ventilation that it would be unlikely to have an impact on mortality. Dr. Snyder, I'd ask you from your perspective as the, the editor of the, the Blue Journal about outcomes, and this trial is a good example of this, outcomes often improve between the time of publication of the preclinical and phase two data that provide the rationale for clinical trials, and then the finally the completion of the trial because of improvements in standard practice as has occurred with, as Dr. Maffei mentioned, low tidal volume ventilation and conservative fluid management. In the manuscript, in fact, uh, the authors mentioned that with lung protective ventilation and conservative fluid management, there may not have been an opportunity for albuterol to further enhance alveolar fluid clearance. So I'd ask you more broadly, how does one deal with this challenge when identifying targets for clinical trials? Well, there are several components to the question. The first question is, should we be publishing negative results, for example, as the editor of the Blue Journal? And we think that we need to see what are we learning from, from the pro this process, what are we learning from these trials. And I think that one of the issues that was very well discussed now by Dr. Perkins and Dr. Matei is that when we have gone from close to 40% a decade ago to 20%, then certainly would it be affected by a specific treatment and uh, and what should be that treatment. And I think uh, there is not a clear clear-cut answer to that. Uh, other therapies, supportive therapies, that also have not proven initially to be positive and then came out and have in the aggregate uh, a positive effect. So uh, I would like to revert the question and ask the, those two investigators, do they think that beta-adrenergic agonists or modulating 
uh, or affecting uh, lung edema clearance has a role in, in, in these patients. Dr. Maffei, I'll give you the uh, first crack in here three minutes. Well, I think that a negative trial never answers with a total certainty whether there could be a role for beta agonists in accelerating fluid clearance in this setting. However, when we looked at the subgroups, patients with PF less than 200 and other issues, we could not see a positive signal. On the other hand, there are clearly clinical circumstances where beta agonists increase fluid clearance. Post-operative edema, there was a terrific study published by Licker and his group from Switzerland and Chest that showed this effect. And then, of course, the New England Journal of Medicine paper by Sartori showed some prophylactic value in high-altitude pulmonary edema. So if we knew, for example, how to heal the epithelium more rapidly, if we had a treatment, let's say, with a growth factor, like keratinocyte growth factor, that would enhance epithelial repair, maybe then a beta agonist would work more effectively. So um, it shouldn't be abandoned as a potential idea with some of those caveats. Dr. Perkins, your editorial with Dr. McCauley regarding this study is entitled Beta Agonist in Acute Lung Injury, The End of the Story? I'll ask you, do you think this is the end of the story? I don't think that this um, is the end of the story for beta agonists in acute lung injury per se. I think what ALTA does deliver to us is an clinically important answer to the, the routine use of nebulized albuterol in patients with acute lung injury. And the conclusion that I've taken away from the, the ALTA study is that there is no evidence for the routine use of nebulized beta agonists in patients with acute lung injury. I think as Dr. Mate referred to, that doesn't close the door on future experimental work looking at combined strategies that may help heal the injured alveoli alongside upregulating alveolar fluid clearance. And I think we mustn't forget that there are ongoing trials. The um, BOLD study, which is beta agonist for oxygenation in, in lung donors, um, is designed to see if nebulized albuterol will improve oxygenation outcomes in patients undergoing organ donation. The Balti Prevention Trial, which is recently completed, will hopefully deliver us the answer of prophylactic strategy in patients undergoing esophagectomy. And the Balti 2 trial, which um, concluded recently, will hopefully deliver to us a, a definitive answer as to the role of intravenous beta agonists in, um, in ARDS. So I think we've got some way to go before we definitively close or, or open the door on beta agonists. I would add one point about the uh, decline in mortality. Now, if we study the patients who have shock and acute lung injury or have a initial oxygenation level, which is much worse, less than 200 or even less than 150, then, in fact, the mortality is higher, uh, as high as 30% to 35%. So I believe that clinical trials and new investigative therapies should be focused on the patients who have higher predicted mortality, especially uh, those with um, shock, needing vasopressors, and a more severe oxygenation defect. And I think that, in fact, the ARDSNET data shows if you take patients who have acute lung injury without shock, their mortality is actually 12 to 13%. 
So it's so low in that group that uh, trying to achieve a statistical benefit with a new therapy is very challenging. Whereas if we focus on the patients with shock and um, worse oxygenation, that's, we might be able to um, further improve mortality and reduce it in that group. Dr. Snyder, any final thoughts? I think that we always uh, are challenged and, and stimulated by studies that suggest new mechanisms and forms how it works, and yet how to translate some of this knowledge into clinical practice. There was a huge controversy that started in 1980s, early 1980s, uh, on the one hand espoused by Dr. Wood and so on that were describing that decreasing fluid was actually beneficial because as edema will not accumulate, then um, from animal models mechanistically it makes sense, so ARDS will allow to heal itself while we are not pumping more fluid. Whereas Dr. Gordon Bernard, and at that point, his, I think Dr. Ken Brigham was his mentor, were, pushed, were actually not convinced about that, and they were thinking that actually giving more fluid was important for adequate oxygen delivery and preventing kidney uh, damage. And finally, after close to 20 years, we are recognizing more and more that conservative fluid management in those patients, while not compromising their oxygen delivery and kidney function, is actually beneficial. Sometimes, you know, what we learn from mechanism, it takes some time to get translated in accepted clinical practice. And that's why I wanted actually to have a little bit more emphasis on the beta-adrenergic story because many of us have studied that and mechanistically we think that it is positive and yet this trial certainly for some people may suggest that is the end of the story. Uh, Dr. Perkins, your thought. I think it's a, a challenge, the translation of uh, clinical trial evidence into clinical practice is in itself a, a challenge. I think the, the ALTA study represents the first of a, of a series of studies that really draw together two or three decades worth of basic science and laboratory work, actually translating that into the, the bedside. And, and I believe delivering, in the case of the ALTA study, um, a result that will assist in informing clinical practice insofar as identifying the routine use of nebulized beta agonists in acute lung injuries is not indicated. And Dr. Maffei, I'll give you the final word. Well, I agree with what Dr. Perkins said and, uh, and also Dr. Schneider. I think we have a lot yet to learn and you don't want to prematurely conclude that a therapy is not effective because there may be variables that you miss. There is a very interesting study, for example, published in the New England Journal indicating that propranolol had not improved clinical outcomes in a set of patients with congestive heart failure. But then when Steve Liggett, a very fine investigator, did a follow-up study on the genetics, he found that there was a subgroup of patients with a particular genetic profile that did in fact, respond well to the drug. So there's so much we don't know about environmental and genetic and host issues that, that we should keep an open mind. That will bring today's podcast to a close. The results of the ALTA study, as well as two accompanying editorials discussing the study, are found in the September 1, 2011 issue of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.
I want to thank Drs. Maffei, Perkins, and Snyder for participating in this podcast. The complete archives of the ATS article discussion series are found at thoracic.org. In addition, a free subscription can be obtained by searching for American Thoracic Society article discussions in iTunes. I'm Nitin Seem for the American Thoracic Society.